This is a Soulfire production. By far the most common questions I uh, get asked about in this space of my business are about relationships. This is usually what people like to ask about in intuitive sessions and and coaching and energy healing definitely and you know how do I align with my with my ideal partner as I've talked about many times before on this podcast but this is why I was so excited to chat with today's guest Stefanos Sifondos if you are not already familiar with his work he is a relationship expert who talks all about conscious dating conscious relationships inner child healing masculine and feminine polarity sacred sexuality all the good stuff. I have been following his work for a while and I just love the content he puts out. There aren't that many people in the relationship space that I resonate with that much. And I just really, really love and appreciate his work. And I I refer his content to a lot of clients and friends. So it was just so great to be able to chat with him and ask some of the questions that come up a lot in in this community and with a lot of my clients. So I'm super excited for you to hear this. It's a big topic in this community. You know, how, how do I navigate dating when I'm on the spiritual journey and attracting in somebody who who's aligned with that? And what do I do if my partner isn't really into all of this, navigating that? So we dive into all of that and so much more. If you love all things relationships and you like to to go deep with relationships and you're looking to really create or attract however you want to look at it, really both a deep connection with somebody, then you're going to love this podcast. And you can learn more from Stefanos on Instagram at Stefanos Sifondos. That will be linked in the show notes as well as his website, stefanossifondos.com. He has some really incredible programs and offerings that I highly encourage you to check out. And if you just like, I don't take a couple of minutes or maybe a couple of hours to scroll through his IGTV, you will learn so much, so much. And you're probably going to want to do that after this episode because he is incredible. So let's go ahead and dive in. Enjoy this conversation with Stefanos Sifondos. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or having trouble with your sleep, I totally feel you. I have been there. And one of the most helpful things I ever did for myself was got my hands on some Ned full spectrum hemp oil. Not all CBDs are alike. You want to be really careful with sourcing and quality, but Ned truly, truly changed my life. Super high quality. And I felt the difference helped me naturally get rid of my anxiety and depression that I had been struggling with for a really long time. It also has played a huge role in reducing my inflammation that I was dealing with from my different autoimmune diseases. And the lingering symptom I was having was trouble sleeping. And since using Ned, I sleep like a baby. I cannot recommend this enough. If you struggle with chronic pain or inflammation, I highly recommend checking this out. I like to use the 750 milligram full spectrum hemp oil every morning and it just evens out my uh, mood for the day. And the way that full spectrum hemp oil works is it supports the endocannabinoid system, which is like the body's balancing system, so to speak. So it basically regulates all of the systems in the body, which is why since using Ned, it not only helped to balance out my cortisol, but also my sex hormones, their full spectrum hemp oil 
helped me get my period back after it was missing for four years. I truly can't live without this stuff. And their Ned Sleep is the absolute best thing I've ever used to support my sleep. I sleep so well. I get so much rest. And I used to wake up every morning feeling like I wasn't rested at all, no matter how much sleep I got. That, the Ned Sleep, plus the Mellow, their magnesium, have completely changed the game for me. It is a super absorbable magnesium, the best magnesium I have ever tried. And I have tried a lot from my years as an NTP and trying all the supplements, all the things from all of my years struggling with chronic illness. These are must-have sleep products for me. So if you struggle with sleep, if you struggle with anxiety, these are things that completely changed my life. And that is why I feel so passionate about sharing them. So if you head to helloned.com and use the code Christina, you will get 15% off your one-time order or 20% off your subscription, which I highly recommend getting a subscription. Again, that is helloned.com, H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com and use that code Christina, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A for 15% off a one-time purchase or 20% off your subscription, which I highly, highly recommend. Ned will change your life. I've been so excited to chat with you. So I definitely will take every minute I can get. Um, I, yeah, I've been wanting to chat with you for so long and, uh, I love talking about relationships and learning about relationships. And I just love the way that you teach about them. Like you're, you're so grounded and humble in it. And I feel like that's something that I don't always find in people who are talking about conscious relationships. And this is a huge topic in, in my community, primarily women, um, who are kind of making that shift, you know, going through their spiritual awakening and realizing, oh shit, the relationships that served me before really aren't anymore. And how do I actually have a conscious partnership? And I would love to, you know, in this episode, I want to go into dating consciously. And then also when you're in relationship, uh, kind of those different aspects. And I would love to start asking you, you know, for, for the person who is at a point where they're like, okay, I, before was in relationships where I learned a lot, but I'm looking for something completely different now. And I want to do this consciously. Where do you suggest they start? It's a great question. And, and I hear what you're saying. There's so many people that are disgruntled with their dating life and they're disorientated. It's like, I seem to be dating the same person over and over again, but it's a different face, different haircut, different kind of person. But really it's not a different kind of person. It's the same. It's the same energetic. We're getting in the same patterns, the same arguments. I, I feel the same shame, the same fears come up, and I'm not changing anything. But we think, we get disillusioned, right? And, and we think and believe, well, this relationship is different because the person looks different, but they're not behaving different, and we're not behaving differently in the relationship. And so for me, when you say, you know, where's the, the first place to start? It's to start with self. Like, where are the common denominators in our lives? Now, what does that actually look like tangibly? The truth of it is most of the time, especially when we're on our healing journey at the beginning stages of our healing journey, or the beginning stages of our awakening journey. In other words, we're learning more about who we truly are in the world, right? We're learning more about our likes and dislikes in a more authentic and genuine way. When we're at that beginning stage, what does that look like? It's very difficult to see the forest through the trees. It's very difficult to make sense of our patterns that have been established and developed and very well curated from a young age, from during our formative years when we started navigating our way through the world, seeing ourselves through other people, developing ideas around our self-worth, how we give and receive love, 
You know, do we feel safe in relationship with our primary caregivers, our parents or whoever those primary caregivers are? Could be an auntie, could be a, a foster mother, or could be an elder sibling, whatever it may be, right? And those experiences that we have impact how we give and receive love as adults. So we have to start with ourselves. And again, can't see the forest through the trees. It's really difficult to make sense of and to make meaning of, even though we're meaning-making machines, to make meaning of our behaviors and our patterns. So having a trusted, respected, revered source of inspiration and reflection, a counselor, a psychologist, a coach, a dear friend, a family member, a group that you're a part of, people that you trust, respect, and revere that can give you feedback into what you may not be able to see. And then from there, of course, awareness isn't the, the first and last step. Awareness is the first steps. Think of a ladder. You're climbing a ladder and awareness is the first step. So if your goal is to get to the top of the ladder, not that growth and expansion is linear, but to simplify it, let's just say that it is, right? Awakening or becoming more connected to self in a more genuine way, in a more loving way is linear. Then awareness are the first few rungs. And of course, interspersed on the climb, there'll be other awareness points because as you break through, so you have an awareness, you take action on that new awareness, consistent action, you've got to climb a few rungs. You then reach a new point of expansion, a new point of understanding self and, and being in the world, actually doing differently. And then new awareness comes. But awareness is always the first steps, always the first rung, right? So we have to then take action with that. Now, here's the interesting thing. To take action, we only need one simple thing, but it's not so simple. We need to feel safe. Simple to understand, somewhat, not simple to execute. We have to feel safe in our nervous systems. But sometimes the patterns that we develop from a young age, and I'll give you an example in a moment, they are so entrenched in our biology and physiology, in our nervous systems, in some of our most ancient nervous systems, um, such as our, our, our dorsal um, uh, vagal nervous system that resides in the parasympathetic nervous system of the autonomic nervous system, like super old, like millions of years old, right? Which essentially is responsible for either feeling safe, like social cohesion and social engagement, or it's responsible for that paralysis that we feel, that immobilization, right? Like to basically, it's beyond fight or flight. The sympathetic nervous system is actually a little beyond that, uh, a little uh, newer than that, so to speak. But we're dealing with physiology that's entrenched within us. And so as a kid, if you're one of your parents was really violent. You may be learned to hide. You developed a strategy of hiding, either physically hiding and or emotionally hiding, or maybe disassociating your mind leaving your body because the violence was too intense. So when you're in relationship as a 30-year-old uh, woman, as an example, and your partner raises their voices or gets aggressive, you're automatically taken back. Your nervous system takes you back to that little time when you were a little girl and Mum or dad was just screaming so much or being physically abusive, and you go straight to those old coping strategies that you once established and used that helped you get to being 30 years old. Without even thinking about it, the nervous system just automatically goes back there. And so we, we, we have to feel safe enough to make the changes. Now, how do we feel safe enough? We're going to go back to people. When we surround ourselves with people that help us feel safe with non-judgment and compassion, that aren't erratic in their movements, that are safe in their own nervous systems, the neuroception of our nervous system, which simply means the way that we unconsciously scan the environment to feel safe, that feeds information to our brains and says, I'm safe. 
right? That then feeds information into the rest of the body, hormonally, biologically, cellularly, et cetera. It says we're safe psychologically. When you're surrounded with people that are safe, your social engagement system comes online. That's the rest and digest system. That is not, you're not in survival mode anymore. So there's this beautiful dance and interplay between physiology and psychology, individual and social psychology, and how that impacts our emotions. And so if you're with a partner that, let's just say, raises their voice because they're passionate or they're really upset, and then they're able to see that you're starting to retract and they immediately apologize because repair is really important. They immediately apologize and they change their body posture. They open themselves up. They move slower. They speak slower. They breathe a little deeper. They look at you in your eyes, say, I'm sorry. All of a sudden, their nervous system becomes safe for you to be able to express yourself, to maybe share that that was not appropriate or that really hurt or that you got scared. And then you're able to repair back and forth as opposed to both of you coming from wounding. I think I got on a tangent then. I'll stop just to make sure. No, that, that was all great. I think you're, I mean, you're totally channeling that for me. That was definitely one of the big things for me of uh, just going back into my, my same childhood patterns of, you know, it got intense and I would shut down and lock myself in my room and hide. And then I was doing that in relationships as well. So I'm sure that's exactly why you brought that up. Um, and I think the distinction you made there with, with the safety piece is so important because I think um, an area where a lot of people struggle is confusing safety with mm. familiarity. Mm. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. You know, that was a big learning lesson for me. Like what I felt, what I was drawn to was because it was familiar. And then, you know, six months later, oh, not familiar in the ways I want. Right. So how do I switch what's familiar to me? Um, I'm sure you see that coming up a lot for people. Oh, most definitely. And for myself, mm-hmm. Christina, for myself, like all of us, we're, you know, I said earlier, we're meaning making machines. So we don't only attach meaning to our meaning or meaning to our experiences, but we also deem to be what is a repetitive experience familiar. And the interpretation of familiarity or the meaning, the general meaning of familiarity is. Well, if it's familiar, it's safe. There's an unconscious agreement within us that, well, if we're still here, we're breathing, we're living, we're doing our thing, we're living through the world, then at some level, the familiarity is safe. Now, you may say living in a concentration camp, for example, it's familiar day to day, day to day, that can't be safe. Well, at some level, it's not safe. But at another level, the unknown and the volatility is safe because you can expect volatility and you can expect the unfamiliar. You can expect to wake up hungry. You can expect to maybe have some food, maybe not. You can expect to, maybe I'm going to be killed, maybe I'm not. The, the, the twistedness in that is that the psychology needs to hang on to something that is repeatable. And so we hang on to familiarity and we deem it to be safe, but it doesn't mean that it's healthy. It could be safe at some level, but it doesn't mean that it's healthy because we've got these competing energies that are going on within us, within psychosocially, emotionally, psychologically, biologically, neurologically, and we're trying to make sense of it all. And sometimes the unhealthy patterns of being in an abusive relationship or being a people pleaser, acquiescing, sacrificing oneself, low self-worth, those patterns you've learned somewhere, you know, being the victim somewhere in your namely in our childhood, but also in our adolescence. Somewhere in our lives, we've learned that that tactic, that survival strategy, that coping strategy has got us attention, has got us love, has got us some level of affection, has had us being seen or witnessed or heard or appreciated, even, albeit just very, very small. 
then we just go back into that pattern. We do more of the people pleasing. Or maybe your pattern is that if you've been coercive or manipulative or aggressive or oppressive or controlling, you've got what you wanted to feel safe in your body. Because maybe you learned that behavior through watching the dynamics of your parents. So whatever those patterns are, if they're familiar to us, at some level they're safe and they're repeatable. And we think they're just going to keep working for us, but what they're doing is they're repeatable, all right, and they're giving us very similar experiences until we break the pattern. But we need to feel safe enough and confident enough in ourselves to break the pattern. And we do that by doing our inner work, by feeling feelings that have been unfelt and trapped in our bodies physiologically at, at the time of inception, right? So call it the abuse, call it the being bullied, call it the being teased, call it not feeling enough, but not knowing how to express that as a kid. And then moving that through the body to create spaciousness in our psychology to then be able to choose differently. I love that. And I feel like that's connected to, I mean, something I definitely wanted to bring up with you in terms of, you know, healing our relationship with the masculine and the feminine. And a lot of people in my audience, a common theme is just being really stuck in their masculine energy. A lot of female entrepreneurs and, and how do you you know, actually get back into your body. So like going back to what you were saying about moving it through the body, what does that look like? What are some tangible practices people can, can do? So the first thing, and this is actually a really important point, right? For me, masculine and feminine energetics uh, are secondary, right? And I'll, and I'll tell you what they're secondary to in a moment. Um, and we can, and again, masculine and feminine energetics are simply cost, contrasted energetics of how we behave and, and move our way through the world. So it can be a, a go and a flow energy, as Michaela Bohm says, or a be and a do energy, or an active and a passive energy. It's just contrast, and we learn very richly through contrast, and they reside within every human being. So it's human qualities first, quote-unquote masculine feminine uh, qualities secondary, because they're essentially just characters. They're not just characteristics. There's more to it than that. Um, the sexuality that's involved as well, the self-perception is... Um, there's interaction with others. It's more than just characteristics. However, let's just say it's secondary. Often in your case, then the example you just gave about that um, female entrepreneur that's stuck in that masculine energy, maybe it's that overdoing energy. It's, it's that I'm defining myself by the objectives that I create in my life and then meet in my life. I'm defining myself by completion energy. I'm defining myself by outward material success. I'm defining myself by the more resources I can accumulate. These are masculine uh, qualities, characteristics, energetics, expressions in the world, right? And if your natural state or your dominant state isn't masculine, that can be excessively tiring. And to maintain that is really difficult and you feel inauthentic. And then the polarity or the sexual relationships, romantic partnerships you're attracting can also sometimes be distorted. But if we keep peeling that back, most of what we call masculine feminine energetics can be pulled back to childhood wounding that's unresolved, adolescent wounding that's unresolved, right? So an example of that is little girls moving through the world. We'll use the example of a female entrepreneur, right? Little girls moving through the world. She sees, and maybe she's got a couple of siblings, older sister, younger sister, older brother, younger brother, it doesn't matter, right? But she sees that in her family and she sees in society, right, that the world, you're rewarded when you do good things. Like you, you perform, right? Like whether it's in sports or academia, like you're rewarded. It's like, oh, well done. You've done so well. I'm so proud of you. And when you're not, there's a disappointment that that little child feels in the people that she worships, that she deifies her parents, right? And so then she says, well, maybe I need to put the mask of competition on. I need to put the mask of achievement on, right? So she puts that mask on. 
Now she hits adolescence, say, right? And hormonally, she's changing. She's moving into womanhood, the rite of passage into, into womanhood. The menstrual cycle starts coming on. Biologically, she starts changing. She starts seeing herself through her peers and what other, other girls are, are doing, and maybe they're getting attention. And, and But all her focus at the moment is on competition and achievement, right? But they're getting attention sexually, and she's coming into her sexual self. So then she layers a feminine mask on top of the masculine mask, on top of her feminine construct, call it. So now she's trying to navigate her way through the world sexually, through polarity. And it doesn't mean sexually, it just doesn't mean having sex. It means self-worth. It means relationship to the body. It means a relationship to shame and guilt and fear and all of that. So now she's moving into allowing herself to be seen by um, other boys, other adolescent boys, teenagers, men. Now she's giving her power away, she's retracting it. The relationship doesn't feel completely clean because there's masks there. Now she's maybe losing some power, losing some control. She needs to get control back to feel empowered, to feel safe. So what does she do? She lays another masculine mask on. The masculine mask is more direct, more in the center, controlling, but she's moving away from her feminine energetic, trusting her body, being in her flow. Being in her discernment, in her clarity. So now she hits adulthood and she's coming into the world again, right? Now, career-wise, she's gone back to that mask of competition, of achievement, of needing to be powerful in the world, needing to be recognized and seen. So that mask is working really well for her. But her love life, her, her sex life, call it, her, the polarity, her intimacy is a better word. Better, better term to describe that, isn't quite exactly where she'd like it to be. The type of men she's attracting are either hyper-passive or hyper-aggressive, not necessarily physically abusive, but just dominant. They just want to compete with her. And she feels she needs to compete, but it's tiring. She can't switch off that masculine mask. So she lays another feminine mask on top, tries it, but it doesn't feel completely authentic because there's all these masks and all this distortion internally. She goes back to the masculine mask because that gives her more control. And so the game continues. You see where I'm going with this, right? It's exhausting. It's, it sounds exhausting. Massively. <laughs> massively. Yeah. It's, it's, so, so basically you start taking off the masks, right? And I'm sure, I know everybody listening is like, I mean, that's a really common thing, right? I, why do I keep attracting in these more passive men or they're always competing with me. You know, it's like two entrepreneurs in the relationship and there's all this competition and how do we get out of this? And that whole dynamic is going on. Yeah. But you wanted something tangible. I missed your actual question. Sorry. Yeah. You wanted something tangible. So let me, um, unless you have something else, I'll go there right now and Please tie go that there. loop. Good. I'll tie that bow. So somatic work in short, somatic therapy. An example of that is breath work. In a child work that integrates and incorporates, so such as internal family systems, as an example, as an established modality, right? My wife and I, Christine, we have our own inner child uh, curriculum and courses that we've developed. Of course, on the shoulders of giants, on you know institutions such as IFS and and, and other um, uh, modalities as well. Of course, inner child work combined with somatic work, breath work is an example of that. So in order to remove the masks, you, you want to work with someone that you feel safe with, that is a safe structure, has done their own internal work, that can help move 
these trapped emotions, help move these masks, help you be seen and witnessed with non-judgment and compassion through the body as well. So we're completing loops. In my coaching institute, I have a coaching institute with my wife and two other amazing human beings, Elementum Coaching Institute. And we teach coaches how to not only be better coaches for the clients, but how to be better clients to themselves. It's a big part of our curriculum. And so part of that is we have a, a process for dealing and moving trauma. And it's a cyclical process, a six-step process. And, and so part of that helps the individual really dislodge and move that trauma through their body. I have my own six-step cyclical model for moving trauma through the body as well, which is very similar to the, the one in Elementum. But somatics is so important because ultimately trauma is stuck in our nervous systems physiologically. And, and, and our nervous systems get stuck in different timelines. And anything that's familiar in our environment in the present moment that stimulates or symbolizes an iota of what we experienced 10, 20, 30 years ago, the nervous system will say, defense, let's bring this up. Let's be better to be safe than sorry. Let's behave in a way that's going to keep us safe. And that could often be pushing people away. It could be having an avoidant attachment style. It could be stonewalling. It could be just you know, not reaching out, ghosting, whatever it may be. You know, we, you know, we get men get a bad rap for ghosting, right? And ultimately what's underneath the ghosting though is pain and fear. Like that. And I'm not excusing that behavior, not at all. And there's just some deep pain that's underneath that, that causes them to do that. Even, even if they're being malicious, even if, they, so let's say they're being malicious and there's elements of NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, or another mental um, uh, disorder, so to speak, personality disorder, that stems from wounding and pain. It's unresolved. I am so excited to announce that my new book, Manifestation Mastery, How to Shift Your Reality and Co-Create with the Universe, will officially be available early 2022. This book is a really comprehensive guide to manifestation and how the energetics of attraction really work. It is the perfect resource if you are ready to really learn how to raise your frequency, become truly magnetic, and make manifestation your lifestyle. If you really want to understand how manifestation works, I highly recommend checking out this book. The book is a completely channeled text and is super activating, so only get your hands on it if you are ready to truly shift your life. As always, I am so grateful and appreciative for all of your support. And one of the best ways you can support me during this book launch is by ordering your copies as soon as they become available. As a thank you, I have some really amazing bonuses. If you pre-order the digital copy, the ebook on January 20th, it will be on super sale that day. You will also receive an exclusive guided manifestation meditation that is brand new. And if you order your hard copy on February 2nd, which is the official release date of the hard copy, you will also receive a manifestation activation to go along with that. And if you leave a review, you will get a bonus chapter that goes along with the book. So a lot of really amazing bonuses are available for you. And I'm just so, so excited for this. So if you want to be one of the first people to get your hands on a copy and score these amazing bonus gifts, be sure to sign up for email updates at christinathechannel.com slash book. That's where you can get all book information christinathechannel.com slash book. And again, the dates to remember are going to be January 20th and February 2nd, 2022. So mark your calendars and tell everyone you know, I am so grateful for all of your support and I really cannot wait for you to get your hands on this book. Do you feel like the way online dating is set up now, uh, 
makes it easier for that to happen? Or do you think it's just highlighting what's already there for people? I think both. Yeah. I think both is the, is the answer. It's a great question as well. And then online dating is a, it's a, uh, go off on it. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> it's a endless bottomless pit. Like firstly, there's, there are so many scams in online dating with, uh, so many of the, the institutions or the apps uh, falsifying profiles and information, right? And this is an every dating app, of course, but there, there are some that do that. And so that means you, you, you're getting a, a false sense of what's available out there. The other issue with it is that you're swiping on a screen or you're looking at images on a screen and it's giving you this false perception that there are plenty of fish, quote unquote, in the sea, right? And so, yes, there are, there are many people to choose from, so to speak, but the reality of suitability is not necessarily accurate and true. And really, we need to meet people in person. We need to be in person with people to feel them, again, through our own neuroception, to feel, are they safe? Do they smell good? Um, do, we, do we feel calm in their presence? You know, what is their history like? I mean, you can understand that through a video call and a, and a phone call and, and, and emailing and all of that. And that's great. But we're, we're stuck in this culture now of just swiping based purely on aesthetics. Now, I'm a big fan of being physically attracted to your partner or to the people that you're having sex with or being physically intimate with, whatever that looks like for you. That's really important. And you're going to get more of that when you're in each other's presence and get a feel. Right now, we're just swiping yes, swiping no, swipe. It's giving us this illusion that we have endless choice out there. Well, firstly, we don't, right? And secondly, we're taking advantage of and discrediting and disregarding and disrespecting the entire process of intimacy. Again, super clear. Nothing wrong with one-night stands. Nothing wrong with casual physical intimacy if that's where you're at. For you personally, identify where that's coming from. What's the source of that? Is it coming because you're you have a fear of commitment. You have a fear of being seen. You have a fear of intimacy. You have a fear of, of, of being in a relationship and what for. Or are you just in a phase or place in your life where you're interested in, in sexual exploration with a variety of people? And that's okay as well, but get super clear on where you're at. And dating apps can distort not only your perception of what's available, but it can also... Everyone has an opportunity to lie on a dating app, and most people do. They'll lie about their height. They'll lie about their weight. They'll, they'll give you photos and angles that aren't completely representative of who they are. You know, they'll give you photos that are six years old or eight years old. They'll lie about what they do. They'll lie about what they earn. And these, when we pull all of this back, dating apps and modern dating technology is simply exploiting ancient sexual mating strategies that both females and males have that are separate that compete with each other to get what they want. Part And, and to simplify that, super simplify that, it's um, procreation and bonding strategies. So the need for intimacy and closeness and to be seen and witnessed and understood and appreciated and all that, but that's secondary to procreation from a biological level, but both are vested in our, in our hormones and in our biology. And so dating apps, media, Billboards, advertising, uh, exploitation—it's all. All it's doing is sexual exploitation. All it's doing is exploiting ancient, old, millions of years old mating strategies that we have in whole. That essentially are really not helping us and not supporting us in growing together, but rather creating more and more distance because we're like, oh, this person doesn't get back to me in this particular way, or this person says something I don't like, I'm not going to even 
entertain the thought or be curious or there's just, that's just gone. It's like, I'm done with you moving on. I feel like there's a lot of fake intimacy on there as, as well. Cause I think a lot more people have intimacy blocks than, than, than realize it. And you know, the number of people that can text things, but can't have an actual conversation like that is super rampant. And I feel like a lot of, you know, the dating apps really like foster that false sense of intimate connections. And then you meet in person and somebody will continue the relationship because like, well, we've had all these deep conversations and it's only been on a computer, you know? And I feel like that really kind of fucks with our heads too. Yep. I completely <laughs> agree. hundred percent. And, and it also develops like social illiteracy. Yeah. So, 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 so many of our youth today don't know how to be with people. I don't know how to communicate. I don't know what questions to ask. I don't know how to be curious. They feel awkward because so much of our interaction is behind a screen, particularly with what's happened and transpired in the world in the last 18 months, right? And, and the fear mechanisms behind that, irrespective of what your political views are or what your views are on big pharma, put all of that aside. Just look at the facts. Look at how we've behaved as a collective in different pockets of the world, right? Look at the, you know, even the term social distancing. Like, think about that, social isolation. We're not bred for that. Our social engagement system has to be online for us to be effective human beings. Well, effective is a relative term, but for us to be healthy human beings. And that's somewhat relative as well, because you want your, your fight or flight mechanism engaged if you're in a dangerous situation. That is effective and relative, right? But what I'm saying is how we expand and grow psychologically, psychosocially, spiritually is through safety and our social engagement systems in our nervous systems, in our autonomic nervous system, particularly our parasympathetic nervous system, that needs to be online more often than it's not online, right? Mm -hmm. And what distance creates is, and fear creates is that not being online and being offline. And by default, if that's offline, we're in our sympathetic nervous system response. That causes illnesses, that causes psychological dis-ease. I mean... Because there are so many issues that are associated with that. And so we have to be, we're relational beings. That's how we've evolved. These conversations that we're having now are possible because of the way that we've relationally interacted with each other over millennia upon millennia upon millennia. And we're taking that away with dating apps and everything's by Zoom now. Like my, I had a client last night and his son has very mild autism. And um, because of what transpired the last 18 months, and by the way, I'm purposely not saying the word because I don't want you the word to be shadow banned or you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the algorithm to, to limit your, your expression. In yeah. the world. It's crazy. That's another, that's another thing. <laughs> um, but he, his, um, his, his tutor, the, the teacher um, that, that teaches him his young son language twice a week has moved to zoom. They live in the same area, but it's convenient now. And, and my response was get your boy in front of this teacher ASAP, but he needs human interaction. He needs to be able to see, her mouth move and her body language, not through a screen, but through, that's how he's going to grow into a more profound human being, but in person. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a whole, it's a whole topic. It's, it's a whole thing. I think for me, where it comes up, like w with dating that, that I see, and I talk to a lot of my friends about is, you know, I, as a, I've been podcasting for over six years, you know, I've hosted multiple shows, I like to ask questions. I'm naturally curious and inquisitive. And I find with a lot of people, it's just like, you don't know how to ask a question. Like, like that, it's that feeling over and over again. What, what's underneath that? Like, is that, is that about this? 
like the screens as well, or what's underneath that? What's what's underneath what? Sorry? When when people just like, it's feeling like the other the person across from me doesn't know how to ask a question. Like there's no curiosity. There's no, it like just can't go anywhere. It's only Got me it. asking yeah. questions. And I find that a lot of I talk about this a lot of my my friends, and they have the same experience. Yeah, self worth. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's many reasons. Let's. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to a few, but self-worth is a big one. So people are going to struggle to be curious, which is, is essentially your body and your mind in a more expansive, safe space when they don't feel safe within themselves. And so again, if they have unresolved trauma, um, unresolved issues of the past, being curious about another person is going to be difficult because they're not confident in themselves. They're not confident in themselves because their their self-worth is low. Maybe they've given their power away, it's been taken from them, they've lost their power through sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, bullying, um, you know, low self-worth growing up, an image of self that that isn't healthy. And so they struggle to connect with other human beings because there's a fear of being judged, a fear of being criticized, fear of being humiliated. And so that fear becomes the mechanism or the driving point for how they show up in relationship. And so there's this constant retraction, like there's this fear, this retraction. And so that includes curiosity because curiosity is an open state. You're not necessarily going to be curious when you feel unsafe. You'll be vigilant. You'll be hyper alert, hyper vigilant, I should say, and hyper alert. You'll be very aware of your surroundings, but you'll perceive your surroundings as a threat. So that individual that you're dating, you know, first, second date, that's sort of shuffling or shy or talking excessively about himself or not being able to ask questions sees you at some level as a threat. Not you as an individual that he's physically in danger, but that if he says something that you you um that you may not like or you may not agree with, he doesn't know how to deal with that level of criticism or difference of opinion and perspective. So it will make it more about him as opposed to getting really curious about you. But also him getting curious about you means that he needs to listen. Most people don't know how to listen. Most people don't know how to really be attentive. And again, they're scared of performance. Like performance anxiety isn't just erectile dis- dysfunction or sexual performance. Performance anxiety is about how you're being seen. So again, a lot of this is our upbringing. A lot of this is our, our social norms and circumstances that we're moving into, not entirely in the, in the world, but at some level in terms of you know, dig- everything's digital now. You know, we're wearing masks excessively, which isn't healthy biologically, right? And again, that's another conversation. But, you know, me doing this and all you see is beautiful that you can see my eyes. That's fantastic. But you're not seeing the, the, the hundreds and the thousands of, of um, movements in my mouth or in my face that are showing you how I'm feeling and what I'm expressing. And, that, and that's, that's not healthy in and of itself, right? So. That's, I mean, that's more of a modern, very nuanced, new thing. However, you know, the age of computers, and I'm not demonizing computers, they're fantastic. It's just how we use it, how we use any technology, you know, whether it's meditation, um, whether it's a computer or a phone, whether it's a nuclear bomb, you know, like, or a nuclear energy, I should say, you know, how we're using it really matters. When you and Christine first met, were you guys in the same location? No, we weren't. So we were introduced. I was in Perth, Western Australia, and she was in San Diego, very far apart. Like, uh, uh, in miles, I think it's miles. It was 11,000 miles apart, something like that, or kilometers. I think it was miles, 11,000 miles apart. Yeah, 15,000, 16,000 kilometers. We were very far from each other. 
We were introduced by mutual friends and we knew we were going to meet in about three months in Europe. So we just, we were just introduced as friends and we just developed a, an affection for each other over that period of time communicating, but we knew we were going to meet very clear on that. And we were also not attached to any idea of what this relationship would look like, platonic, romantic, sexual, whatever. Like we were just getting to know each other and we were, very, we were living our lives and we were very transparent and clear with each other all along the way. And when we did physically meet, chemistry, not any biological chemistry, but emotional chemistry that we'd been cultivating for three months, getting to really know each other at a deeper level, asking questions of each other, not being embarrassed or shy or, you know, shame acts as a massive block to curiosity as well, when we feel shame about ourselves. So, you know, we'd done enough work um, at that point to, to be just really transparent with each other and really authentic with each other. What, what did you, in, in terms of that relationship, like how do you find that you showed up differently or what did you do differently that you felt like really set you guys up for success compared to previously? Honesty and truth. Yeah. And also the, the, the inner work that I'd done to get to know myself at a deeper level and to, to start to shift the unresolved trauma and pain that I was experiencing or had experienced or was feeling in my life. I find that in, in my community, something that comes up a lot is, you know, someone feeling like my partner, like I'm on this, this growth and awakening path and I'm doing all this deeper inner work and, and he's not really doing that himself. And I would like him to do that. And obviously we can't make anybody do anything. Uh, it's their, it's their life and their choice. But for a woman who feel who's feeling that way, what would you say to her? So first thing is get really clear on what your non-negotiables are. If growth in a relationship is really important to you, and I mean really important to you, then you need to be able to say no to a partner that doesn't doesn't align that with doesn't align with you on that, and yes to a partner that does. And so the more that we say no, the more yeses we get, and the more we say yes to what's authentic to us, the clearer our nos become as well. So when when you're in a partnership and you're doing something. Maybe it's a course, maybe it's a modality that you're studying, maybe it's yoga, whatever it may be, and you're really enthralled in it and it's exciting for you. A couple of things. Firstly, your partner doesn't have to do that, right? They don't, they don't need to get involved in that. But if they're refusing to grow or refusing to be curious about what you're doing, but even then that can be okay because every other area of your relationship can be really, really cool, can be really connected, you know, whether it's your sexual relationship, your emotional relationship. But again, like what you're referring to is, is specifically someone that's not willing to grow. So you've got to live it. As, as, a, as, a, as a woman in that relationship, live, lead by example, this growth that you're experiencing. And if he's still not coming on board, then you can make a request. Use nonviolent communication as a modality. Make the observation, express your feeling from an autonomous place, state what your needs are, and make a request. Now. If he refuses to do that, you've got a couple of choices. You can continue to be in the relationship and live your path and live this part of your relationship separately if that jives for you, or you're super clear on what your non-negotiables are, and maybe that relationship has to come to an end because, you know, when we, when we again, when we say no, we open up doors to saying yes. That is very, very true. I mean, I think, I think also the other side of it, it goes back to honesty and truth, like you were saying before, and I find mm. that. I see a lot of people who just don't express, like they're just not even expressing that it's important to them or that they're excited about it. So he doesn't even know, like he doesn't, he doesn't even know that she would like that. 
you know, and I think just that is where like the simple breakdown in communication can sometimes lie as well. And like with that, something I, I really wanted you to bring up um, or to talk more about is like rules for conflict, or I don't know if you want to call it rules or just how do we, how do we fight um, effectively? And mm. so could you speak more to that and kind of how, how that's helped you in your relationship? Most definitely. And, and, you know, someone like John Bradshaw, um, you know, who does a lot of inner child work, um, lays some foundation for this. John Gottman and the John Gottman Institute is exceptional resources for this. Harvill Hendricks as well. But essentially, you know, to simplify uh, a response to your question, agreements. Like get super clear on what your agreements are with how you want to disagree, how you want to engage in conflict. And do that from a healthy place when you're connected to each other, not when you're in the middle of feeling unsafe or being in argument, right? And, and, and something that John Gottman Institute goes, goes into, and this is you know, really research-backed as well, um, an effective way to communicate in conflict, if you're, not, if you're not hearing each other, create space, go for a walk, move the body, create endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, move through the body. Don't think about your vantage point. Don't think about um, you know, what you want to say and what your argument, argumentative points are and the debate. You know, listen to a podcast, listen to some music read something, go about your day, do some gardening, come back a few hours later. But again, you have agreements on what that looks like because for someone that has an anxious attachment style, being away for three hours may be really overwhelming. But if they know it's a three-hour thing or it's coming this evening, the, the extended conversation because you had to have a break because it was a little too intense, then they can feel safe in that. And so you're both healing. So having those agreements in place is super important, but to have your agreements in place, you've got to know yourself. You've got to know what your values are. You've got to know what's important to you, right? And you've got to make a decision together about how do you want to treat each other? Do you want to treat each other how maybe your parents treated each other, you know, like with, with volatility and screaming, or do you want to really hear each other? So what modalities can you engage in? Well, Harville Hendricks has a modality called the Imago Dialogue, I-M-A-G-O, Imago Dialogue. It's a great tool for communication, just like NVC is. So you can utilize these tools to communicate and make a commitment and be consistent in the execution of these tools, right? And those agreements set a foundation for success. And if you see that you're breaking agreements, like you're screaming at each other, or you're banging things, or you're moving really fast, in those moments, you can say, you don't have to just have a split or a break, like, you know, like a three-hour spacer, and you can just say, hey, you're moving a little bit too fast. Would it be, a, you know, would you move less fast? Would you be less erratic in your movement? Part of may say, yes, I apologize for that. Let's go. Let's take, let's take a few deep breaths and let's go back to what we're speaking to. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that would overlap with like knowing your, your partner's kind of wounds and trigger points. You know, 100%. I know, I know for, for me, like just being really clear on like, obviously in a separate conversation, Hey, this is what my dad did. This is what my mom did when they were upset. So yeah. like when, when you do this, I go back to that place uh, because I found that so many times, you know, you could be in a, in an argument and I'm not even fighting with that person. I'm fighting with my dad or my mom, you know, it's just the, the same yep. thing playing out. Um, so I'm assuming having that conversation separately and like, like knowing that about that person. Most definitely. So knowing your partner's wounds, knowing their history, knowing their relationship to sexuality, to shame, to self-worth, knowing, knowing how they behaved um, and how you behaved in different partnerships previous to this one is all very useful. Something else that's really useful is when you're in a difficult situation with your partner, in that moment, do your best to see their seven or six, you know, five-year-old or seven-year-old little girl or boy in them. 
because that will give you compassion and, 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 and empathy and understanding and connection to know that they're probably coming from a, a hurtful place right now if they're overreactive or if they're being really intense. And seeing them relaxes your nervous system, which will, which will relax their nervous system. And you don't have to say anything. You can, but you don't need to. And you can just begin to move in love. And another great thing to do in conflict as well is say, do I want to be right or do I want to come from love? And what would love do now? That's a really important question too. I love, I love that question so much. Great, great place to end it. I have one final question. If you could tell your, your 20 year old self, one thing, uh, to support you in relationships moving forward, what would you, what would you tell him? Yeah, you know, I would tell him to start his, and the interesting thing is he started his journey quite young in terms of personal development, but he played in the shallows because he was too scared to touch his trauma. And I would just say, it's all going to be okay. Like it's not too, it's, it's maybe really scary when you're there, but just keep going, be consistent, be willing, like just keep, keep going and, and do that now. Don't wait. Mm, love it. Love it. Starts with the self. Well, I know you have so many amazing offers and ways that people can, can work with you. Where, where do you suggest people start? Yeah. So, I mean, the basics are, uh, you know, my website, stephanosafandos.com. Uh, if you want to coach me one-on-one capacity, uh, coachwithsteph.com. My social media is at Stephanos Safandos. My wife and I have an amazing program that may be really relative to your audience as well, Be the Queen. And it really is for women that are looking to up-level their dating lives. Uh, but so much of what we spoke about today, which is clearing the clutter of the past, healing those old past wounds so they're not unconsciously uh, unre- in an unrealized way coming through in relationship is a big part of the program. We actually kick it off um, November 30th, so you know very soon. Um, however, it's an amazing program. The, the, the queens in there, the ladies that, that come together, it's such a supportive group. It's a three-month live teaching, virtual live teaching curriculum with a beautiful graduation at the end, which is usually in person as well, which is super, super cool. Just that in and of itself is so powerful. Uh, the surprises that we give there but yeah be the queen i think would be just so so relative to your audience and you can find that on my website but also my, my wife's website christinehassler.com slash be the queen perfect we'll put all of that in the show notes and i just so appreciate all of your wisdom and your time so thank you so much for being here thank you christina appreciate you huge thank you to Stephanos for coming on the podcast and sharing so much incredible knowledge. I'm sure you're going to want to learn more from him and check out some of his incredible offerings. So if you are ready to dive in deeper and really create deep transformation, just head to his website, stephanosstefandos.com. Links will be in the show notes. Head to his Instagram at stephanosstefandos and enjoy the endless relationship wisdom. If you did enjoy this podcast, be sure to take a screenshot and share it to Instagram stories. You can tag me at Christina, the channel and at Christina, the channel pod. You can also tag Stephanos. I so appreciate when you guys share the podcast to social media. It really helps grow the show and allows other people to find this information as well. And maybe you have a friend that is top of mind for you who you've been talking about relationships with often recently. So maybe you want to send them over the link to this episode as well, if it was helpful for you. So that's going to be it for today's show. Thank you again so much for tuning in. I hope you have an incredible rest of your day and I will chat with you again next episode. 